Let me start today's sermon off with a true story that will relate to our passages today and to our subject matter, our focus today. Um, a true story. Uh, it was in, in the volatility of the 1960s, um, in a time when racial segregation had a really big grip in the United States, especially in the South. Something uh, extraordinary, something incredible was unfolding in uh, New Orleans. It was uh, with this sweet little six-year-old black girl named Ruby Bridges. Heard of Ruby Bridges? I wasn't actually that familiar with this story. Um, she, um, she found herself in the midst of this conflict when uh, she was selected or uh, her family chose to have her attend an all-white school. She was one of the first children to attend this particular all-white school. And it was on that fateful first day, I think it was November 14th, 1960, uh, that she attended the school when um, horrific things happened that day. The teachers all refused to teach her. The governor of the state, Governor um, Wallace, I think it was, he had stood doing a press conference on the doorsteps of that school with his, own, with his own body blocking the entryway to the school, demanding for the National Guard to be sent in. 200 protesters waited at 8.30 a.m. in the morning to protest Ruby's inclusion in the school. The president sent four U.S. marshals to protect her. They arrived that morning at her home to pick her up. They drove her to the school, and she thought that people were out celebrating. She didn't realize they were there to oppose her. And the U.S. marshals, as they were going to um, escort her into the building, told her, as you get out of the vehicle, just walk straight ahead, look straight ahead, don't look back. The crowd started pointing and shouting. Tensions rose. One, people, one, one person even drew their gun. People in the crowd threatened to kill her. Some people threatened to poison her. Some people said they were going to hang her. Somebody brought a small black doll in a coffin and paraded it around the school. And they positioned it so that she had to walk past it when she entered the school. She says that Seeing that doll gave her nightmares. As she entered the classroom, she was the only kid there. Just her mere presence had caused families to withdraw their children from the school. But then the families that even did continue to send their kids to the school, the principal still segregated them. So Ruby could hear children playing and doing things in other classrooms, but she was alone by herself, isolated. The next day, the crowds doubled. And her mother would pray every single day when she sent her daughter off to school for protection, for God's power and help, waiting until 3 p.m. until she would get home. Lots of questions loomed, lots of challenges faced, but one of the big questions that remained was, would Ruby and her family have the courage to endure this adversity and this hatred and this prejudice. Let me pause the story there. I'll conclude it at the end of the sermon. It does relate to what we're going to be talking about uh, today. So as we said, we're in this series called Being the Church, and today we're 
digging into looking at how do we build an encouraging culture in our church? How does any church build an encouraging culture? And our, our sermon title today will make sense as we go through it, but it's called Encouraging Discomfort, and uh, that'll make sense as we unpack this and go through this today. Let me say a quick prayer. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and that you are a God of encouragement and that you encourage us. Help us to learn how to be those of encouragement. And God, strengthen us. Help us to face the adversity of life and the challenges together by your power. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know you today, Lord, show them the way. I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, God has made us social creatures where the quality of our lives is determined by the quality of our relationships. Let me say that again if you didn't think quite click. God has made us to be social creatures. We have to, we need to, we want to interact with other people. And the very quality, the goodness of our lives is directly connected to the quality of our relationships. And our relationships being good is our responsibility. God himself knows that we need this, that we need encouragement, that we have to hear things, we need support from each other. So in Deuteronomy chapter 1, God encourages Joshua, verse 38, it says, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter the, so this is talking about the promised land, and God tells the people, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit uh, the land or inherit it. So God knew, even early on in the Bible, one of the big stories of the Bible, God's people entering the promised land, God knew Joshua wouldn't just need God's encouragement, well, and that's the most important thing you need. You need God's validation, God's encouragement, of course. That's the big thing. But this is so important that as the father of the nation, as the chief shepherd of the nation, that God intentionally told all the people, you need to encourage your leader. You need to encourage Joshua. The odds are stacked against him. There's a high chance of failure. And the people had a history of grumbling and complaining about the previous administration. Uh, Moses, people didn't like Moses, uh, you know, I mean, he wasn't perfect, but a pretty decent guy, you know, and uh, people grumbled and complained, and they had this track record. If God hadn't have spoken to the people, maybe they wouldn't have figured out, oh, our leader Joshua needs our encouragement. He needs our support. He needs us to vocalize it, to share it, to get behind him, because the, the odds are stacked against us, and the challenges that we face are insurmountable. Now, encouragement is not just one of those things where, well, because human beings are emotionally weak, vulnerable people, we just have to stroke each other's egos a little bit and just to kind of, you know, pump each other up. And uh, it's kind of like a necessary evil. Like, if we weren't just so weak, uh, we, we wouldn't have to do it as much. Uh, it's, it's, that's uh, kind of looking at it like a necessary evil. Like, ah, just kind of annoying. I have to encourage people so much because if they just didn't need so much encouragement, we'd be, be able to get on with things. Uh, encouragement... It comes from God. It comes from God. Hebrew, uh, Romans 15, excuse me, Romans 15 tells us this, verse 5. The Apostle Paul says, May the God of encouragement, the God of encouragement, grant you to live in such harmony. God, this is something that comes from God's nature. So if you want to be shepherds like God, God is the great shepherd. We're supposed to be like him. If we're going to shepherd like God, we need to learn to encourage like God encourages. 
Now, this whole series we're doing really is designed to show us how God is our shepherd, we're his flock, and that he delegates shepherding to certain leaders and you know, pastors and other types of leaders. He, he gives that shepherding heart to others, but then that's supposed to trickle down. It's supposed to, so there's kind of a hierarchy to it in the sense that it comes from God, it comes down through certain key people, but then it's supposed to permeate all of God's people that we're supposed to be people who replicate and imitate the shepherding heart of God, which means we're learning how to encourage. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, this is a verse to all Christians. We're told this, verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes, encourage one another and build one another up. So this isn't honed in on particular leaders or special Christians or people just, hey, you just got the gift of encouragement or you're just a positive person or, hey, you've been a Christian for one day or you're young or you're old. or It doesn't hone in on it. It's a blanket statement. So if you are a follower of Christ, it is your job, it is your responsibility to infuse the flock of God around you with encouragement. It is your task. This is what God has given all of us. He's given it to me. He's given it to our whole church, to every church. This is a big responsibility uh, to bear. Now, we might, when we think about encouragement, we might tend to think of uh, comfort, right? Giving comfort to other people. Or uh, we might think of, uh, isn't encouragement kind of just, you know, kindness, essentially? It's just another way of saying, like, well, speaking kind words to people. Or uh, paying someone a compliment. If I pay them a compliment, that's encouraging, isn't it? Or if I console them in some way, isn't that, isn't that an encouraging thing? Uh, well, I guess an encouragement may be comforting or may result in that. Or, uh, you know, there can be overlap in these things. But encouragement is a separate thing. It's a different thing. We're, we're shown this in, uh, what was the next verse? Go with the next verse. Philippians 2, I think it is. Chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and any, any participation in the Spirit. So you've got to notice this. When the Bible uh, uses words, strings sometimes some words together, packages them together, there's some overlap. Here, put that verse back up for me, will you? There's some overlap between, between them. Um, so we've got, go back, yeah, wrong way. There we go. Um, so... That there's some overlap between them, that like, hey, there might be some comfort in encouragement, but also they're separate words, they're unique words. And so they, even though they might be packaged together and might have, be, be communicating, and just keep that verse up for a second, uh, they might be communicating something overall, um, they still have a separate meaning to them that we've got to drill down into and understand. So even in this verse, any comfort from love, Paul ties the idea of comfort with love. That if you do something... Loving something. See, see, comfort is about reassurance. It's like a relational warmth. I'm reassuring the somebody around me. I'm, I'm being there to essentially to comfort them. I'm loving them, pouring out upon them. But it's it is unique. It is different to encouragement. Another word that we have uh, that the Bible uses uh, quite a bit is the word exhortation or to exhort. It's not common vernacular. Maybe it is for you. Maybe you go around saying, let me exhort you, brother. Let me exhort you, sister. Maybe we should start doing that. What do you think? Next Sunday, an exhortation challenges. Let me exhort you. Uh, it sounds cool, actually, uh, to do that. We, we, if we don't understand what these words mean, we might just, when we read them in the Bible, you know, we come across these words or different people using these words, and we might think, oh, that's just another way of saying encouragement, right? Isn't, if I exhort somebody, aren't, aren't I just edifying them? Aren't I just 
lifting their spirit up. So they just, you know, yeah, they just, again, getting pumped up. They're just encouraged. Just another way to encourage. Well, again, the Bible delineates these things. It separates these things. So 1 Thessalonians 2.12, Paul writes, We exhort each one of you and encourage you. So yeah, they're packaged together, so there's maybe something similar about them, but they're separate words. We exhort and encourage you. So to exhort is different to encouragement. Exhort is uh, to essentially give someone some advice or some counsel. In today's language, we might say um, to somebody, hey, I just want to really strongly recommend you do this. Like, I really want to push you in this direction. Like, that's, you know, we might even say, I just want to encourage you to do this. You know, we might even use the word encouragement to say that, to give an exhortation uh, in that way. But again, uh, maybe it overlaps, maybe there can be some encouragement in it, but it's, again, the exhortation is, is its own thing. Uh, encouragement is tied to strengthening, strengthening each other. Uh, but again, the Bible separates these things out. So in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 28, it says, But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over to the head of his people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So again, this is now God, you know, going back to that time in the Old Testament where the people are inheriting the land that God had promised them. Again, we see strengthening and encouragement are packaged together, so there's something similar about them, but they're, they're separate words, so there's also something very unique about them. To strengthen is different in this sense that you literally might strengthen somebody like by giving them more power. So in Joshua's case, it might be uh, he needs more soldiers for the army, and they need more weapons, more armor, they need uh, supplies, they need water or food or uh, whatever it might be to, to literally give them more power. To strengthen somebody is to do that. The other way that strengthening can be used in the Bible is um, mental alertness. So if you strengthen somebody, you're strengthening them mentally. Uh, so this is the idea that if you're unfocused and distracted, um, you, somebody can strengthen you mentally where you, you, get more, you, you get focused on what you should be focused on. That's, a, that's another way that, that the Bible can use the word, the idea of strengthening. But again different to encouragement. So what is unique about encouragement? The word encouragement literally means to put courage into somebody. To put, I mean, it's in the word. should be a big clue. It's in the word. To put courage into somebody. This is, when we think about, even when we hear the word encouragement, we've got to train ourselves to start hearing and start thinking courage. If I hear encouragement, I should start thinking courage. That Essentially, when we're, when we're encouraging someone, what we're doing is we're helping them to face something they're afraid of, to give them confidence, where before there was hesitancy or there was fear only, trepidation. Now there's, there's confidence. Now there's, there's some inspiration. There's some motivation to step out to do something. It's not just, it's, it's, it's different. It's, it's, it's a whole different, category. encouragement is this whole different category of infusing people with, with courage. God says to Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, directly he says, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. So you see, when we read that word, when we read, that's a very famous verse actually, be strong and courageous. When we read that courageous, we may not associate it with, that's God encouraging him. He's, he's, he's telling him to be, 
to be courageous. Uh, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you should go. So when we give somebody courage, we're giving them boldness to do something that they could not do before, something they were held back by, afraid of. And, and so we're, we're, it's not the absence of fear. Sometimes that's, I mean, even though God says, hey, don't be afraid, that doesn't mean that all, sometimes there might be times where you were afraid and it completely goes. That can happen. But oftentimes the way encouragement works, or we could even call it encouragement. You're going to receive encouragement, all right? So, so the way encouragement works is your, it becomes, that feeling becomes bigger than the feeling of your fears. You still oftentimes feel afraid. You still oftentimes feel concerned or worried about something or anxious about it. But the, the encouragement or the encouragement or the, the courageous, adventurous spirit that somebody is sowing in you, that is stronger it's more powerful than the apprehension that you once had, that the fear that you once faced. So in our desire to comfort each other, which that's great, we should comfort each other, in our desire to give advice, to exhort, and to, to uh, counsel each other, that's great, we should do that. There are timely moments when that's necessary. In our desire to strengthen, to clarify things, to get that mental clarity, in our, all our desire to do that, what we cannot miss, what is plain, in plain sight before us in the Scripture, is we have to give each other courage. We need courage for this reason. Courage is the key to activating all the things that God says to us. See, how much of life is wasted simply because we were just afraid to do something? We were just intimidated. Either our own internal thinking or the thoughts or, or the, the opinions of others or the, the resistance or the pushing away of others, whatever it might be, one of our greatest weapons against apathy, against fear, is courage. And you get it from other people. You pour it out. You, you, you share it with other people. Courage is, is powerful like that. that this, is, this is the key we need to actually break out of inactivity in our lives. That, you know, in, of course, I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't be comforting or, you know, the, give each other counsel and, 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 and help bring clarity. Of course, we, we need to do those things. But in one sense, if all we do is be kind, is that going to help people ultimately move out into the things they need to, to, to move into? It's not. We're missing. Without understanding, people need to receive courage from, from us. We've got to be giving that out to each other. And it's important that we draw these distinctions. It's important that, that we actually understand the meaning of words. We, we get away from the meaning of words. We, we forget what words are all about. And it's so important that we create this distinction because to truly encourage someone is not very comforting. Because think about it. To encourage somebody to face their fears is a lot of discomfort. That's why it's called encouraging discomfort today. Because to truly give someone courage is to tell them you, you can do something difficult. You can face something difficult that might cost you something. It might be hard for you to do it. It might fail. It may not work. But you, you got to do it. you got to stand up and fight that battle. I mean, that, that's, Paul says this in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul writes this. He says, fight the good fight. See, that, is that comforting words? Is that... It's, 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 I guess, in one sense, advice, fight the good fight. But the, 
the Christian life is a battle. It's a, it's a fight that we're constantly in. And to, to intentionally have this mindset of, I need to be somebody of courage because I have battles to fight every day. And we can get so tired of fighting, right? You can get worn out of all these battles I'm, I'm fighting. But that's why you have to have courage. That's why, you know, churches, we, we're supposed to be like bravery dispensers. Where each week we come, frail and weak, beaten up maybe, or, and we come to receive courage to receive power to fight the fight again, to get back out there, to lift up the sword again, to lift up the shield again, to say, I'm going to keep fighting evil. I'm going to, feed, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to keep fighting darkness and keep pushing it back, back on, on sin. I keep fighting all these different things. I think it was Billy Graham, the famous evangelist. He said uh, this. He says, courage is contagious. When a brave man takes a stand, the spine of others are often stiffened. There's so many ways that God has given us to encourage each other, to courage each other. One of them, one of the most obvious ones, is obviously in our words, right? In how we, we speak. Uh, our words, you know, sometimes you just hear a certain phrase or somebody says something in a certain way and it, it's bold. It's, it's, uh, it's different to maybe the sentiment of the times. You know, we live in a very uh, therapeutic time period where we're all very sensitive and uh, you know, words of violence, right? Or those kind of things, those kind of ideas in our culture. And so this is out of fashion now to, to actually speak boldness to each other, to encourage each other, give power to each other to face the challenges that we face, but we've got to do it. And words are a powerful way to do it. We see this in uh, the book of Acts. I think it's Acts chapter 15. It says, Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened. So again, those two words are, are packaged together but separate. Encourage and strengthen the brothers with many words. So this was a practice of the early church. Leaders saying we've got to use our words to encourage. So we should take every opportunity we can to fill each other with courage with our words. Because I don't know about you, but it's easy to uh, give in to those, those negative thoughts. I think, it's, I think I've read this before. I'm trying to remember the stat, but you know, most... What is it? Seventy percent of stats are made up on the spot. Uh, that's a made-up statistic. Uh, but it, uh, I think I think this is true. Correct me if I'm wrong. Anyone? Fact check me on this. Someone online on the on the comments. Fact check me on this. But I think it, that I think eighty percent of your thoughts throughout the day are automatically negative. So I don't know where that all comes from. I don't know if that's just our own flesh thinking that way. I'm sure some people are more prone to that than others. If it's just the flesh, if it's demonic influences, if it's if it's the influence of the world upon us, whatever it might be. Uh, but we come against all kind of defeating thoughts and defeating beliefs constantly, right? Imposter syndrome is a real thing. Anyone struggle with imposter syndrome? I shouldn't be here, da da da. You know, hey, some people don't go to church because like I don't know what to do. I'm gonna people are gonna know I'm phony, or they won't go to a small group because they're like I don't know the Bible. And it's like, hey, that's everyone. You know, none of us. There's stuff I don't know in the Bible. You know, I'm still figuring it out. You know, uh, we we'll have those fears and those those concerns. But we've got to take every opportunity we can to speak the truth to, to each other, to, to, to use words of encouragement, because in doing so, we're actually engaging in spiritual warfare on the behalf of those that we're talking to. So we're actually replacing those lies, and those defeating beliefs with truth. That's the power of an encouraging word. I mean, have you ever experienced that before where you came in and you're thinking something and you're 
down in the dumps and you're struggling and you, you hear a word and something, you say something or something in a song or a word comes and you're like, oh my gosh, my spirit is now set on fire. Like something radically changed. I mean, that's the power of an, of an encouraging word. It's, it's amazing how that can work. Now, you, know, you, you can be in a really low place where sometimes that, that, you know, that can take a lot of those encouraging words, but it still works. It's, it's God, and the Holy Spirit can break through any barrier to use those encouraging words. But the, so, so our words are really a big deal. The, the, the biggest source of encouragement, though, is God's Word, is the, is the Bible. And, and God in His grace, by the power of His Holy Spirit, and the strength of His, his, arm, his arm, He's preserved the Bible for us over thousands of years across multiple cultures. It's recorded for us the history of God's people. It's got in it the highest moral teaching that, that mankind could ever discover and ever learn about it. Most importantly, it tells us about the person and work of Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's come to do. That's the power of it. And when we read it and when we share it, we're filling ourselves with courage and we're spreading courage to others. Romans 15 tells us this. Verse 4, it says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. See, the Scriptures are like an anchor. Life is a storm, and when you're blown about by the storm, you're going to move a little bit. But when you have an anchor, even though there's a little bit of movement, you don't go far. You get a little bit rocked around, a little bit shaken up, a little bit battered by the storm, but you don't go too far because that anchor is holding you in one spot. And here's how, God's, here's how God works. It's amazing. God makes these promises to us. And we're leery of promises, right? Because we probably have some broken promises in our lives. Probably have some people that we loved or cared about. Or we wanted people to stay committed to their promises and they broke their promises. Or we're disappointed with ourselves because we made promises that we broke. Human beings, man, we're... We're pretty screwed up bunch uh, making all these promises and breaking all these promises. But here's how promises from God work. And there's so many amazing promises that encourage us as we read them in, the, in God's Word. God wants us to be so utterly convinced of His promises that He swears on Himself. And, and here's the thing that the Bible tells us about God is that He's holy. He cannot lie. So God is holy. He's not like a human being that He would lie. There's no deception in God. God does conceal things from us for our protection or because there are some things that just we can't understand or shouldn't know. But he's not deceptive. And he's holy, so we can't lie. And he wants to convince us of his promises. And so when he makes a promise, he swears on himself. That's called a covenant. But we don't understand covenants, right? We sign rental agreements. We sign mortgage agreements. We sign these things. We say, yeah, I've got a, a contract, legal, legally binding contract. We understand that, but we don't really understand a covenant, covenant is like that times, times infinity. The truest sense of covenant is, is in God wanting to, to, to convince us so much that we can depend on him, that he's our strength, that he's always going to be there for us, that when he makes a promise, he swears on himself that he will keep the promise, and therefore it can never be broken. That's crazy, if you've never put that together before, if you don't understand that. I think it's in Hebrews 6. Uh, the authors of Hebrews put it, put it this way, verse 17 through 19. It says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchanging character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God made an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This is the power of God's word. This is the power, the courage you get from reading and sharing God's promises, God's words to us. Now, of course, the greatest way that we spread courage to each other is the the courage that we embody. Because courage is this kind of thing that you can teach on it, you can explain what it is, and people can get a little bit inspired by it. But true courage is it's, it's caught more than taught. It's kind of like learning how to swim. You know, like you can read a book all day long on swimming, but at the end of the day, you've got to get in the water and just thrash around and try something. And courage is something that is, is, is caught more than taught. And so it, the, now that shouldn't stop us from still using words of encouragement to each other. We, we, even if we failed, even if we're not the best example of encouragement, we, uh, having somebody, you know, somebody of courage, we should still speak it. But the best thing to do is to show it. That's where I, I know that's where I get courage from. When I see it in other people, I see somebody taking a stand. I see somebody enduring something that's so hard. I see somebody taking a step towards something they were afraid of before. And I start to see the blessing in their life. I'm like, man, that gives me courage. But they did that. So this should start to give us some kind of motivation to say, I've got a lot of, there's a lot of reasons to be more brave because of the impact it can have on, on people around me. People, we're a fearful bunch. We're a weak bunch. And every step of bravery we can take helps inspire and motivate people to step out in similar ways. Now, we can't get too caught up in the, uh, you know, there are epic acts of courage, right? Heroic, incredible acts of sacrifice and courage. And maybe uh, points in our lives will be those people making those, those epic acts. Uh, that should be us too. But we, we can't get too caught up in just thinking about those examples. We've got to think about the everyday examples of courage. Maybe you, to give courage to others, maybe you need to, instead of living under the fear and being controlled by your your finances, for example, maybe you need to start saying, I'm going to get some confidence to get that in order. I just need a little bit of courage. And maybe I'm going to receive, I'm going to look to others to receive that, but, but that could be an example to others. Maybe, maybe that, strange relationship that you have. So yeah, you know what? I'm going to take a step of, a brave step, step of courage to try and resolve that. That could be a source of encouragement to others. Maybe, you know, you invite your neighbor to church. Bring somebody to something. You say, yeah, that's, that, you know. See, it's our testimonies that oftentimes trigger faith in people. I see this happening all the time. It's amazing. And actually, our confidence and our courage as we grow in it, we have to be careful with it because it is, like Billy Graham said, it's contagious. So if you're confident about the wrong thing, you can actually inspire wrong confidence in people as well. It goes both ways. So you have to be, have to be careful about that. So I want to make sure I'm really being confident in the right things. Um, there's kind of an interesting, interesting example of this in the New Testament. Um, there was a controversy in the church in Corinth where in their day and age, people would sacrifice, you know, they sacrifice uh, animals to certain idols, essentially demon worship. They're making these sacrifices to these demons, uh, these false gods and worshiping them. And then the meat 
that were sacrificed to these idols, um, there was some controversy amongst the church there where uh, some Christians were eating the meat, and other Christians weren't eating the meat, and so people were freaked out, like, should you eat the meat? Like, if you eat it, are you going to be demonized? Are you worshiping the demon? Like, it's a big controversy. And the Apostle Paul writes to them, and he says, like, actually, true knowledge, true understanding, true theology, true insight is to understand this. Eating the meat, as a Christian, the meat has no power over you. You're not going to be demonized. You're not worshiping the demon. That's essentially what, what he's saying. You can eat the meat. You're free to eat the meat. Except for if you... If, if a weaker believer, somebody who doesn't have this understanding, they don't know this truth, they don't know that you're free to eat it, and they see you eat it, you might give them confidence to go against even their own conscience, or they're tempted, maybe they think they eat it out of worship, or eat it out of some kind of devotion. I think it's, uh, yeah, for, yeah, 1 Corinthians 8.10. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged, is that word? You get encouraged from it. If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. So we've got to be careful that we're not leading people into uh, the wrong confidence. You, that's, that's, a, that's a very interesting example because you can be confident about doing something. If your conscience is good with it and it's not a wrong thing to do, it's fine to have all the confidence in the world. The problem is if another Christian, their conscience is weak, what kind of influence am I having on them? That takes some discernment. So not only do we want to be careful about that, we also want to be careful that we don't encourage people to stop doing the good things they should be doing. So when we complain a lot, any complainers in the room? Man, complainers are, man, complainers are a big, big drain, right? It's hard. You know, I, I hate myself sometimes when I start complaining because I'm like, I hate it when I hear other people complaining and now I'm the one doing the complaining. It's like such an energy suck. You're just like... Get me out of here right now. This is, you know, I, I, I do. I, I you know, I, I want to have, I feel like every problem is, is just an obstacle to be overcome. You know, I just feel like any, any barrier in my life, I face a barrier, I face a problem, face a setback, I'm like, this is just needs more fighting power. Just, you just got to plow through it, overcome it, find a way around it. That, that's my mentality. And so um, when I hear people complaining, like, well, you just, that's too hard. Can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. I'm just like, makes me, it's... Uh, the more sanctification in that, in that, that realm. Um, but there's a way to vent that's healthy and, and good and, and, and you know, express our concerns. But when we're needlessly complaining about things, we steal courage from people. We steal courage. So actually applying it to our series, being, being the church, if, if, we, if, if we complain about ministry, we complain about church, we complain about different people, different things, or... Whatever it might be, we complain, if we complain about stuff, we're stealing courage from people. We're, we're creating a kind of a toxic environment that just makes it hard for people to engage to see the purpose of it. If we're the kind of people that resist serving, and we're doing our serving fair today, but if we're the kind of attitude that says, well, that's for somebody else, it's not for me. I understand there might be, if somebody's new, it might take a little bit of time to figure it out. That's okay, but... Somebody's persistently like, well, no, other people need to do that. It's like, well, that stills courage from other people. What about generosity? When we're lacking in generosity, what does that do? That stills courage. That validates. That gives other people, it gives them, actually emboldens them to say, yeah, well, you know, they're not doing it. I'm not going to do it 
either. Now, there are pitfalls to being courageous, and there are pitfalls to, to, to being confident in things. Sometimes people misinterpret confidence. I mean, you, you, do, you do have to be careful about it. Um, it needs to be humble confidence. Um, but I, would say, I just want to say this. Cur- giving each other courage is so important because without it, you can't break free of stuff that, that holds you back. You, you have to get that spark so it becomes, that feeling of courage becomes stronger than the feelings of fear that you have. And the way you get it is from other people. It's from God, from the Holy Spirit. It comes from outside. It comes in. It takes over you. And it's so important that if we don't get it, we'll be meandering around. And it's so important that even if there are pitfalls, even if it can be misinterpreted, I've had this before. I, you know, I've expressed confidence in certain things and people have ridiculed it or, or, or rejected it somehow or, or accused motive somehow. And it's like, that's hard when that happens. You know, maybe I could have done different things better. But the point is, I would rather err on the side of inspiring people to godly action and to doing the right thing and sometimes get a little bit of criticism for it, sometimes get a little bit of pushback on it. I would rather that because, because I don't want people to be stuck in their sin, stuck in their shame, stuck in isolation, stuck in darkness. And the biggest gift you could give somebody, a fellow believer, is courage. It's one of the biggest gifts. I mean, if all we do is just be nice and say kind words to each other, that's not a gift. We do need that, right? And, and praise God for the, the emotional health of our, our moment in history that we understand there's trauma, this thing, you know, the past really affects you. Like, hey, you've you got to go back and figure that stuff out. Like, of course. Praise God that we've got more understanding of all that. But what we can't do is we can't allow that to, to move us into a place where we say, well, I'm incapable of overcoming these things or I'm incapable of growing out of those things or moving or getting healed from those things because healing should move us to a place of strength where now I've got courage. It doesn't mean I feel great about it all the time, but I've got enough courage to step out, to continue on. If we're going to build a culture of courage, of encouragement, that means in God's house, we've got to give out more courage. We've got to give out pocketfuls, bucketfuls, Bathtub folds of courage each and every Sunday. That, that's got to be your goal. Come to church, say, people, people are struggling. People are weak. I've got to give them gifts of bravery so they can step up in their lives and step out in their lives where they're held back. Like Any little thing I can do to help inspire somebody to move on, they've got to do it. Because, you know, however much we might want to do things for other people, so I'm going to rescue this person, or rescue that person, or do this for this person, honestly... And there, there are times where people are incapable of doing things for themselves and we have to step in at different times. Of course, judging and discerning that is key, but oh, the biggest thing we can do is to fuel somebody with that courage where they say, now I know I can step out. Now I know I can do it. Now I know I be- I'm beginning to believe. He's beginning to believe. It's like the Matrix. Morpheus, anyone? Morpheus quote there from the Matrix. All right. What happened with sweet little six-year-old Ruby Bridges on that fateful day. If anyone needed courage and encouragement, it would have been Ruby. Thank God that she had multiple, tons of sources of encouragement. By God's grace, he gave her all kinds of sources of encouragement. Firstly, her parents. Her parents simply making the choice that we are going to send her. We know this is the right thing to do, even though we're under massive attack, massive pushback, massive prejudice. Massive amounts of hatred. Could somebody harm us, even kill us? All those things were possibilities. Her parents' example, her parents' courage, 
communicated to her, this is the right thing to do. This is what we need to do. Also, the, the president sending those four U.S. marshals to protect her, that gave her a lot of courage as well. There were other civil rights leaders and community organizers and activists who all sent their support and encouragement to Ruby and her family. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote her a letter giving her encouragement. That'd be pretty encouraging, wouldn't it? Um, people from all around the country sent money in. Letters came in from all over with encouraging messages, supporting, saying you're doing the right thing. Keep going. Her church community gave them tons of their, their pastor and their church family, prayers. They had their back. They stood with them during this trial that was Ruby got confidence and courage from every corner. And in a surprising twist of events, a teacher, a white teacher by the name of Barbara Henry, the only teacher who stood up and volunteered to teach Ruby. Ruby had never seen a white teacher before. And Miss Henry's compassion and commitment to Ruby, plus Ruby's uh, brightness and her desire to learn, that combination, they, f they forged this very strong bond, this very profound bond together. And it was that teacher's courage. When nobody else would step up, she stepped up. Her courage eventually inspired other teachers to do exactly the same thing. You know, there were Ruby, uh, Ruby Bridges also said that she was aware that of the other, the white families that continued to attend the school, because there was still, it wasn't everybody, it was, it was only some people, but the white families that continued to send their kids to the school, they had to fight through the lines of protesters every day with no U.S. marshals to protect them. They had to take their kids through those violent mobs every single day. And she said those white families gave her courage, that they faced that as well. As the school year went on, her classroom began to fill up bit by bit. Families were returning, students were returning, and minds were being changed. By the end of the school year, it was filled back up. Minds were changing. Attitudes were changing. The battle against uh, segregation was slowly being won. And her example, her courage, her testimony, her story has become a symbol of courage for so many people. And she herself displayed outsized courage for a six-year-old child. She's been commended by all kinds of leaders and presented with all kinds of awards and all kinds of recognition. I think uh, former President Barack Obama said that she was a personal source of inspiration to him. She has started the Ruby Bridges Foundation that seeks to bring educational equality and through that, she inspires and gives courage to thousands and thousands of families every year. Ruby Bridges says this. She says, my mother and our pastor always said, you have to pray for your enemies and people who do, wrong, who do you wrong. And that's what I did. She's a huge inspiration. Her story, like all stories, point us to the greatest story, the highest story, the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus. Jesus 
was born in conflict, born in, in filth, born in squalor, born in a scandal, in the midst of tension. It's, the Bible tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin, and if you don't believe that, then there's only one other alternative, that he was born out of wedlock. That's what some people believed. Christians, we believe he was born of a virgin, but born in turmoil, born in a scandal. He was hunted by Herod, obscured for most of his life, opposed by his own community. Jesus was hated by religious Jewish leaders. He was betrayed by one of his close companions, falsely charged by the state, then abandoned by his closest companion, beaten to an inch of, an inch of his life. He was spat on. He was punched. His beard was torn out. He was cut. He was bruised. Finally nailed to a cross to die for sinners, mocked in that place, humiliated, taunted, rejected, and he never backed down. He didn't give up. He didn't quit. He displayed more courage than anyone will ever have to display, ever. On the cross, Jesus going to the cross, everybody distanced themselves from him. Even those who still were close by were distant. The Father in heaven distanced himself from Jesus. On the cross, Jesus cried out, Why have you forsaken me? There is no greater feeling of loneliness and of abandonment and of rejection than what Jesus felt on the cross. To be abandoned by all your friends, all your family, by your own people, and by your Father in heaven. And he did that. He endured that with absolute courage. He did that for us. He did that for you. To take away our evil, to bear our burden, to bear our sin. He did it because we were segregated from God. See, that's what the cross is. It's desegregation between people and God. Removing the barrier. The cross of Christ is the greatest example of courage in human history. There cannot be another example of courage that could ever be greater than what Jesus did on the cross. So let's worship Jesus for it. Let's sing to him. Because it is only in him, in his sacrifice, in his works, that fill our hearts with boldness, that communicate to us that we can face the trials of life, that we can overcome the evil that we see around us because of him. And if we don't know it, then how can we share it with others? How, how can we bless others with it? How can we infuse others with that confidence? It comes from Jesus and only from Jesus.